Now, the tech team have cunningly used five minutes, which is what they really needed, to uh, reboot the system and sort out the live stream. <laughs> but it hasn't worked. Is the live stream not on? Boo. That's a shame. Okay, all right. So we're going to read Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 60. And this is following on from um, Stephen being pulled in by and, and made to account for himself in front of the, the Sanhedrin, which is the kind of the, 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 the ruling council or the ruling court of the, uh, the, the, the elders of the people, the Jewish. So it was a Jewish court. Uh, and because Stephen's uh, was performing signs and wonders, we looked last week at the passage that described Stephen's ministry. Stephen was set apart to wait on tables, uh, but he was a man full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, and uh, God was really using him, and he was ministering signs and wonders and, and proclaiming the gospel, and some of the Jews from further out uh, from the diaspora, the, the place where Jews were scattered to, were uh, arguing with Stephen. And then they kind of contrived charges against him, just as they had done with Jesus. They found some people and persuaded them to, to lie and say that Stephen was speaking blasphemy and so on. It's very contemporary when you consider Salman Rushdie's experience uh, and, and the, the, the fatwa that was originally uh, pronounced against him. And, and there, all these years later, uh, somebody has uh, stabbed him and he's in a critical condition in a hospital bed. And so we understand in contemporary reality uh, that uh, intensity uh, and intense hatred and opposition can lead to murderous attempts on people because they're fundamentally uh, opposed to what they believe or what they say. And so Stephen was hauled before the Sanhedrin and then he gave uh, this speech. So we read from chapter 7 verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen... Are these charges true, the charges of blasphemy? The, the, the charges that they were brought were, uh, verse 14 in the previous chapter, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Okay, so the argument is about place and it's about law and it's about customs and it's about the temple. Okay, those are the charges. So bear those three in mind, place or land, law and customs, and temple. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. 
Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Sorry. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and he received living living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. 
They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephem, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? He has not my hand made all these things. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. Well done for hanging in there. It's not a short passage, is it? But it's also a passage that hangs together, as hopefully we'll see. Now, maybe reading it, you think, oh my goodness, how did Stephen manage to keep his audience awake? You know, it's a, a long, apparently, perfunctory summary of Israel's history. Did the chief priests really need to hear that? What, what was Stephen doing? It's not the most electrifying at some levels. So what's going on here? What is, what is Stephen saying? And, and what is there in this, you know, summary of Israel's history that was enough to make them pick up lumps of rock and kill the man? It doesn't seem to our ears or in our reading to be too inflammatory. I asked you to hold three concepts in your head that form uh, the, 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 the land, the law, and the temple. And I asked you earlier on to talk with one another about what are the, the places that have formed your identity. And I don't know what answers you gave, obviously, but some of them may have been long and some of them may have been short. 
And some of them may have been to do with ancestry and a sense of where you come from and where you belong. Okay, I'm Scottish and my family always have been Scottish or wherever. That's my core identity, that the land is, is where I'm from. That's what's made me and the product of that land. But of course, other places were to do with experiences that you had, people that you knew, formative encounters, which might have been your schooling. It might have been where you went to uni or a job or you might have gone and, and lived abroad for a season. And some of them might have been really short but really important moments in your life that made the difference between then and now or before and after. If you were Jewish and if you were a priest and if you were an elder and a member of the Sanhedrin, then your identity was formed as a religious Jew by the land of Israel, core fundamental to your understanding of who you are is the land of Israel. It's the law because what binds you together as a people is the fact that you're descendants of the, 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 the nomadic people, the people that wandered through the desert and ended up in the land of Israel. And so Moses, the lawgiver, huge hero, lawgiver, very important. You know, he would have... If they were allowed them, which they weren't, they would have had statues to Moses. I was walking through George Square on Friday night and someone was commenting, I was street passing and someone was commenting saying George Square is to get a big makeover. And we were speculating whether that meant it was an opportunity to, you know, uh, swap out some of the statuary that's in there because of the move away from commemorating certain people with statues because of the slave history of Glasgow. It's a contentious conversation. Do you remember the fact and what they did, or do you remove all trace? Well, if they could have had a statue to Abraham, they'd have had a statue to Abraham, they'd have had one to Isaac, they'd have had one to Jacob, certainly one to Joseph, they'd have had one to Moses and Joshua, they'd have had statues everywhere to all these great guys. And so the land, the law, and the temple. And of course the temple brings us on to another couple of statues they'd have had. They've had one to David, Israel's greatest king, who wanted to build a temple for God. They had traveled in the tabernacle, which was a massive marquee, <laughs> massive tent that was their place of worship as they traveled through the wilderness. And then David wanted to build a temple and God said, no, it's your son who's going to build the temple. And so Solomon did. So these are like three cornerstones. I'm not sure you can have a good building with three cornerstones unless it's circular or triangular, but I'm not an architect. And remember that the charges against Stephen had been to do with him speaking against the temple, him speaking against the law, and him uh, basically undermining some of these foundations. And so Stephen's speech, if, um, there's 60 verses there, folks. You'll be delighted to know that I'm not going to go back through uh, every single one. But we're going to take a broad brush look at what the content of Stephen's preach focused in on. Because the chief priests and the teachers of the law were so fixed and focused on these 
foundations, these pillars of, of what, what God had given them that could never be altered or changed, that Stephen is effectively going back and saying, eh, I think if you look more closely, you'll find that the dynamic God, the living God, the God who has, yes, led us to this place and this law and this temple is a God who has expressed himself through the actions and the activities of relationship in different people's lives. And so he begins with Abraham and Abraham's call. Abraham was an old man with no kids, a lot of money, a huge household, plenty of wealth, settled, probably expecting to live out his years. And God said, go, leave everything, just go. Now, I don't think there's too many people in their twilight years. There are some, certainly some, but I don't think there's too many people in their twilight years who are like, you know what? I'm just going to throw it all over and go somewhere I've never been before. I'm going to leave the kids and the grandkids. I'm going to leave all my wealth and I'm just going to take off. That's less than normal behavior. You get to a time in life, you want to settle down and know where your future is. Where's the health care? Am I going to have people to support me? Have I got enough money in my pension? And so on. Have I got security for the years that are coming? And God said to Abraham, leave it all and go. And Abraham, the radical, obedient maverick that he was, did what God asked him to do. Because he trusted God. And then the next little bit describes how Abraham passed through the land of Canaan. Abraham, the great, the father, the father of the three monotheistic religions, traveled through the land of Canaan and never in his entire life did he own a square foot of land in Israel. And so Stephen's saying, see that's Abraham that you worship he never owned any land here, even though he passed through and God gave him the promises. He seems to have managed to have had a, a, an amazing relationship with God and been part of an important part of the journey without owning the land. Matthew and I were talking about land ownership earlier on. Can you own land? What does it mean to own land? The land was there before you lived. The land will be there after you. The land fed and nurtured you and the land will be the place in which you'll be buried. What does it mean to own land? The land owns us. <laughs> and so there was no inheritance for Abraham. And he said, your descendants would be strangers, enslaved and ill-treated in another land. And he gave to Abraham circumcision a succession of descendants, the line that would go all the way to the Messiah. No land for Abraham. And then he goes on to tell the story of his descendants, of Joseph, who was sold by his brothers. We know these stories from Genesis. And Joseph was sold by his brothers. Where? To Egypt. And the next phase of what God did was through a guy called Joseph who was an arrogant upstart 17-year-old with pretensions about his own gifts who was a pain in the neck, poorly fathered by a father who made no, uh, had no qualms about stating his preference for one son over the others. And so through a, a, a combination of dysfunctional parenting 
A God-given gift and the arrogance of youth, Joseph ended up in Egypt as a slave. And it was in Egypt that God rescued his people. It was in Egypt that that one family once reconciled grew to become a nation. So not this land then, but a foreign land. And so it describes, verse 15, Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. These greats that you've got your statues, although you haven't got statues, but you would have if you could, they didn't die in this land, they died in Egypt. And so then it moves on to the Exodus narrative. And so we're, we're moving on from, from the, the focus on the, the land that they worship that is so important. Are you getting the theme here? He's pointing to all the great moments and the people and saying what mattered to them was their relationship with God, not their possession of a land. And then they became slaves, and during the time of slavery, Moses was born. And there's a little bit of Moses' backstory. Taken care of, brought up, and then within Pharaoh's palace, educated and raised by, uh, in Egypt as an Egyptian, an outsider to his own people. Because God chooses people, sometimes, who are the outsiders. God will do incredible things through people who are not necessarily the mainstream ones. And Moses was raised in the palace as an Egyptian. He had no connection or relationship with his own people. Although he was one of them, he wasn't part of them. And not only that, Moses, when he tried to integrate himself with his own people, he did it by clumsily killing an Egyptian um, slave driver and they said who made you ruler and judge over us okay so here's Moses statue to Moses the great and what was the first reaction of God's people to Moses who made you ruler and judge over us get lost We don't recognize you. You're not one of us with your fancy Egyptian hairdo and your palace clothes and your fluent Egyptian da-di-da. Who do you think you are? One of us, as if. Get your hands dirty and then maybe we'll talk about one of us. And he was the one that God had chosen. And yet the Israelites didn't recognize Moses, didn't want him. In fact, hounded him out of town so they had to flee to Midian where he lived as, oh, let's see, a foreigner, an outsider. Until God met Moses in the burning bush in the desert. And what was it that made the difference? An encounter with the living God. And God said, take off your sandals because the land where your place where you're standing is holy. You see, the land that is holy is the land where God is. (laughs) It's where you meet God. And the person that God uses can come from anywhere or be anyone. And so Moses 
was raised up by God despite the rejection of the people. And he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. And Moses led them out of Egypt. And Moses told them, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. And you see, in the time when Stephen, when Jesus lived, first century AD, the expectation was that there would be the Messiah would be a Moses kind of figure. Well, let's think about the Moses figure then. A maverick, an outsider, not someone you'd expect. Someone who would be rejected by his own people. Hmm, sounds a bit like Jesus to me. So can you see where Stephen's going with this? Our ancestors refused to obey Moses. Statue to Moses, the one we refused to obey. Our great hero, Abraham, Moses, all these great heroes, most of them had a hard time. And they went after Aaron and said, make us an idol. And so the Sanhedrin that worshipped Moses and the law are descended from the people who made an idol with Aaron. They refused to listen. And then he goes on to talk about the the tabernacle. They traveled through the wilderness with the tabernacle. And David wanted to make a dwelling place for God, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. They'd been a nomadic people traveling with God wherever God would take them or send them. And it was David who asked and Solomon who was given permission to build a permanent house. You see, that's what we crave, isn't it? Permanence, security. In Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John's Gospel, chapter 3, Where Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. God is a God who blows by his spirit. And we cannot see what he's doing next. You know, the church for 2,000 years has tried to pin God down. It's built its own versions of the temple with its cathedrals and its fine buildings. It's created its laws and its traditions. It's put on fancy clothes and costumes. It's uh, certainly in the Church of Scotland, we have articles declaratory and acts of the assembly coming out of our ears. We love to codify, control, shape, fossilize, make rules for God and say this is what God does or doesn't do, can or can't do, will or won't do. And Stephen's speech points to a God who through Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon has been a maverick God, delightfully doing just exactly what he wanted to do and people have had to catch up. And when Jesus came, 
He came as an outsider like Moses. He came as one who was raised up, who was given this incredible ministry to advance the kingdom of God, who was God in the presence of the people, doing amazing, beautiful things, but things that confounded the establishment, things that were not expected, things that broke with the control of the priests or the teachers of the law. What's your expectation of God? Because all of these people, the ones who would have the statues, have one thing in common. They knew God. They knew God personally. They listened for what God would call them to do. They listened for what their instructions were. They went where they were sent, even if it was risky or made no sense. They trusted God to use them even if they had a dodgy past like Moses who was a murderer or Abraham who at one point passed his wife off as his sister in a big fat lie to save his own skin or David who was an adulterer or Solomon who ended up greedy beyond belief despite the fact that he was wise. They were all flawed human beings. All of them To one degree or another, not expecting to be used or called by God, Abraham was settling down for retirement. Moses could have just absorbed the easy privilege of Egypt because he escaped the curse of slavery while his fellow countrymen were breaking their backs under the burning sun. Joseph, the privileged boy, had a rough time and spent years in jail before God actually used him. There is no one-size-fits-all. Our lives are a journey of faith. And God may put you in one land or one place for a season. And God may use you there or bless you there, but be ready to be called on or taken to the next place. And don't imagine that you can see now what the pattern for the future is going to look like, because if you want settled and stable If you want predictable and conservative, then you're following the wrong God. The wind blows where it wills. And if we're to be useful and available to God, then God has got to be able to surprise even us and allow to do new and surprising things in this and every generation. He's a God who is to be trusted to be consistent with his character and his word, and at the same time, to take us, his people, off in perhaps surprising directions. Stephen's speech reminds them of the history that they worship and idolize, but actually by drilling into it says, you see the people that you venerate? They were all ready to go and do the crazy thing in the time when they were called to do it. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Can you contain God? No, you can't, except in your heart and in your life. The only place God truly desires to dwell, the only house he's really looking for is your heart, your life. And when he's in there by the power of the Holy Spirit, then he will take you off wherever 
He wants to go if you're willing to go with him. And so Stephen reaches his conclusion. You stiff-necked people, you're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And when he's talking about the ancestors, he wasn't talking about Abraham or Moses. He was talking about the people of Israel who time after time after time dug in, rejected Moses, followed Aaron, got it wrong. And when they heard it, they stoned Stephen to death. And even in Stephen's dying moments, he had an encounter with the living God and with Jesus. So heaven opened and they dragged him out of the city and there's a little introduction to a young man named Saul who's going to be really critical for the next bit of the story. And Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. Why? Because he was praying in the power of the spirit the same words that Jesus prayed from the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing and into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen was a young man full of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we as individual Christians and as a church never become so atrophied by convention or expectation, so dulled by what we think God does or doesn't do or is or isn't allowed to do that we play it safe and either as individuals or as a church become a people that are afraid to respond to what God the Holy Spirit is calling us to be and do in this or any season. My prayer for us at St. George's Tron is that we will always be a listening people, that we will be nimble and ready to pivot and go in whatever direction God needs us to go in order to do whatever he wants to do. But that needs to be your prayer too for whatever God has called you to be or do in your life. Are you ready, willing, and available to go where he sends you, even if it's weird or risky or it doesn't make sense? Are you willing with Abraham to throw it all over, however old you are, and say, do you know what? I know God's calling me to do this, so I'm going to say yes. Don't do it just for its own sake, but if God calls you, say yes. Or if, like Moses, you might think, I'm the last person that God could use in that situation. Well, think of Moses, who was probably the last person you would choose and was the one God did choose. Let's never set limits or expectations for God. Binding him in place or binding him in a particular way of doing things. Let's allow ourselves to be carried along by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, always checking in with the truth of his word. But let's not be afraid to be a risky people. In the parable of the talents that Jesus told, it was the risk takers who received the revenue And the one who played it safe with his talent buried safely in the ground who received the rebuke. And so God calls us, as he called Stephen, to give his all. And that's why we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would keep us from atrophying in the safety or conventions of what we think you do and do not, can and cannot do. Lord, you've called your church and your people to be living stones, rising up to be a temple in which you dwell by your Holy Spirit. 
You call us to be a people of dynamic, responsive faith. In love and in conversation with you. With open ears and hearts ready to go where you will send us. And to switch gear or direction according to what you show us. Lord, may we be like Abraham and Moses. We recognize how easily people start off as mavericks or outliers and yet down through the pages of history become set as figures of convention. Lord, may we be a nimble people, an obedient people. May we be people who are making a difference in our world or in society that if we sense a call from you, a passion from you, a concern for you, from you, to go or to speak or to act, then, Lord, may we be responsive. And, Lord, if our calling and our sending takes us into our workplace, then may we be a sign of the risen Jesus in that place. If it's a call or a sending that takes us from this city to another place, then may we be responsive to you and obedient to you. If we're going into a place or a job where we might be the only Christian, Lord, show us how we can be obedient to you and a sign of your grace and your power in that place. Lord, if we're called by you into some kind of ministry or mission that is identified, then, Lord, would you help us to know what that is and where and how we're to go? Lord, would you take our lives and let them count? And if we're already in the place of our calling, then would you anoint us afresh, Lord, to be effective in it? Would you help us, Lord, as unlikely as we might be, or might think we are, to be a sign of your presence in that place? And Lord, we pray for our nation that desperately needs to see a sign of the risen Jesus in its ordinary places, in its places of trade and commerce, of community, of education, of public life and office. We pray again for our government and the ongoing discussions and debates about its leadership. And we pray, Lord, that we will have leadership that will express a heart of compassion, particularly as we move into times of financial difficulty and challenge for many, many people. We pray for good leadership, Lord. We pray for your help and your mercy because it will be the poorest people who will eat the least and feel the coldest most. Lord, hear us as we pray. We pray for Salman Rushdie and we pray for those who are treating him. We pray for his recovery. We thank you for his or the courage of anyone who speaks about what they think or believe, even if it's in a literary form. And we pray, Lord, for for him, as little as we know of him personally, we know that he suffered an injustice and we pray for him and for the man who's been arrested for his attack. So Lord, hear our prayers for all this we ask in and through the name of Jesus. Amen. So we finish our service. We're going to sing one more song, hymn together. Abby's coming back and then... Uh, yeah, stay on and get another cup of tea before you go unless you're desperate to get into the sun. <laughs>